Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. Sam Stern, joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have a special treat for ourselves and, well, for you listeners, too. We have in studio with us Principal Analyst Gina Bowalker. Hi, Gina. Hi, thanks for having me. We wanted to talk to you again about inclusive design, and we've talked about this on the previous episode, but such an important topic and one that you'll be speaking about at our upcoming CXSF forum. Gina, can you start us off by reminding us of the importance, the reasons for doing inclusive design, besides just being nice to people who have some accessibility challenges with digital screens and interfaces? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's quite a few reasons. And just for anyone who may not be aware who's listening, when we say inclusive design, what we're talking about is designing for everyone in your target market by factoring in variations in their abilities, age, cultural background, language, gender, and other traits. And there's many reasons why it makes sense to adopt an inclusive design approach as part of your customer experience strategy. One of the main ones is there are markets that you just will not be able to tap into if you don't take this approach. So, Mm -hmm. for example, in my speech, I'm going to be highlighting the stories of several individuals with disabilities that I met recently who are unable to use certain websites because they're not coded to work properly with the assistive technologies that these individuals rely on in order to use the web. So these are markets you may be missing out on altogether. Now, in addition to that, though, there's many other reasons. One of the more compelling ones which I'll also be highlighting in my speech, is there's a legal risk associated with not caring about this stuff. This has been quite a topic in the news lately, actually, because there's a major case happening with Domino's Pizza. I've blogged about this on the Forrester site, where they're essentially trying to take their case all the way to the Supreme Court, arguing that they don't need to make their website accessible because the laws, as far as what is required, are not clear. And I can't predict what's going to happen in that case, but the legal foundation for digital accessibility is actually quite strong. We saw over 2,200 lawsuits last year related to web accessibility. And in most cases, companies settled with the individuals who sued them and agreed to make their products accessible. So there's a strong foundation and companies would be wise to take a proactive approach and be thinking about this now versus reacting when they find themselves in that situation. And then there's also a talent retention angle too. So I'll be talking in my speech about U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank about 18 months ago stood up an accessibility program. So they're very focused on making banking better for people with disabilities. And they had shared with me that before they stood up that program, they were actually known as a company in the Minneapolis digital market that people didn't want to work for. It was basically one of these companies you would go to to ruin your portfolio, in their (laughs) words. And after standing up an accessibility program and having that top-down support for Mm -hmm. this work, they've grown from 35 to, I believe, over 110 UX people in their organization. And they have people basically knocking down their doors wanting to work there and largely because of this focus that they've placed on accessibility and inclusive design. So this is something that's important to employees. Employees want to work for companies who care about this stuff. And so there's that talent acquisition and retention benefit as well. That's interesting. So there's the populations that you can reach or are mm-hmm. not reaching. There's legal ramifications and also just making sure that you're doing the right thing. And then there is also the values component, right? So being a company that values this can attract employees as well as customers too. Yes, 
Absolutely. I often find myself actually when I'm talking to customer experience leaders saying, if you go back to your company and you start talking to your design team about inclusive design, you're going to find they're already talking about it. Mm -hmm. This is a very important topic in that community. And many designers, I think, feel a responsibility and, and realize that they have a certain power to actually impact in this area. Yeah, that actually must be a really appealing part of being a designer is to say, mm -hmm. I can make the world a better place very tangibly in this way. Yeah. So, Gina, you've given us lots of compelling evidence for the value of doing this. And yet 2,200 lawsuits last mm -hmm. year, you said, or more. So obviously, a lot of companies are still not doing it or being forced to. They're doing it in reaction to a lawsuit, which is not a proactive mindset in any means. How do we get more companies to do this? Because I think it's something probably a lot more companies want to do, but feel challenged to make the necessary changes to do this well. I think a big reason why more companies aren't doing this is they are afraid that this is going to add a lot of time and a lot of budget to their already expensive <laughs> digital wow. experience development projects. So what I'm going to be talking about in the speech is you don't have to take your current experience design process and throw it out the window. That's not what we're saying here. We're talking about adding some new practices and some new people to the process in order to make sure that you're not leaving any of your customers out. So this can be done really by focusing on three different things. The first is I talk about embedding inclusive thinking throughout the design process versus bolting it on at the end. An example of this is within the design community, the topic of design systems is really big right now. And this is where companies are creating reusable standards and components and code that they can apply across their experiences. And so one thing that you can do is simply make sure that everything that goes into your design system meets the documented accessibility standards. This is a really easy way to start to scale this way of designing. So Airbnb recognized that the illustrations that they were using externally in their marketing materials and such weren't representative of the very wide population that they serve. So they created an inclusive illustration library where they made sure that people with different disabilities were represented, people of different skin tones. They even went out and they pulled together tons of photos of people of different cultural backgrounds and studied things like eye shape and no shape and how that varies across different cultures. And they made sure that they had illustrations in their library that represented essentially this diverse group of people that they're trying to make feel like they belong, right, with Airbnb, their mission of belong anywhere. And so these sorts of techniques to embed into the process is the first point. The second point is to examine our solutions through new lenses. And there's two specific techniques there that don't require any budget in order to implement your organization. The first one is to just start asking new questions. Design teams have a process for design critique where designers across the company will come together and give each other feedback on what they're working on. But they're probably not asking questions in those critiques like, what does this design sound like? to someone who is going to consume this via audio and right. not visuals? Or will someone who didn't grow up speaking English as their native language understand this content? Or have we written it to be too complex? And so by simply building in these questions, you can start to spot issues and act on that before you get too far down into development. The other piece of that is applying what I call inclusive design lenses. So most companies have personas, and personas are very useful for design, but they only get 
get us so far because they don't factor in this very wide set of traits that our customers have. And so by applying lenses on top of our personas, I'll give you one example of that. The lens of someone who is attention limited. You may have someone who's using your mobile app who, I don't know, maybe is taking care of a baby or driving in their car or has something that's pulling their attention away from that experience. And so you can ask yourself for personas in that situation, is the solution still going to work for them? Or do we need to reevaluate something about this idea? And you can apply ability-based lenses to things like someone with a visual impairment within this persona be able to use this effectively. And so by applying these lenses, again, you can start to catch issues Mm -hmm. early on. I love the attention lens in particular, Mm -hmm. because it's it's one that people with attention deficit disorder, they're okay, that's their burden in the world. But all of us in certain times and contexts are attention burdened in that way, right? Exactly. Because we're distracted, as you were saying, right? We've Mm -hmm. got a a kid calling to us while we're trying to complete this quick transaction, or we're multitasking or whatever the distraction is. Mm -hmm. So literally all of us at some point are ADHD, essentially. There's actually this really brilliant tool I love from Microsoft. It's part of this inclusive design toolkit they've developed, and it's called the Persona Spectrum. And it illustrates exactly that, Sam. So it basically describes how when you create a solution that works for someone with a permanent condition, like ADHD, or someone who's legally blind, or someone who's hearing impaired, that solution actually scales and helps everyone who might be in a situation where they also (laughs) have that, quote, disability. And then the third and final piece that we're going to talk about is that we need to expand who we include in the design process. Most companies are very good at pulling together cross-functional teams in terms of disciplines, but they're not very good about pulling together diverse perspectives in other senses, like people with disabilities, as we've been talking about. And so I'm challenging companies to, when you go out and recruit for customer research, don't treat these sorts of demographic factors as this afterthought. I think a lot of companies tend to say, oh, I need people who fit this persona, but yeah, get me a mix of genders and ages and, you know, these different traits. But they don't actually realize that those criteria are arguably as important as the other things that they're recruiting for. And so just broadening who we think about, including in research, mm-hmm. is the last piece. And imagine different cultures as well and languages. Yeah, different cultures as well. That they'll bring to the experience too. Yep. And a common pushback when I bring up this point is, well, wait a minute, are you saying I'm going to have to go recruit like 50 people for (laughs) interviews now instead of like the standard 10 people I might recruit for a set of interviews or a usability study. And that's not what I'm saying at all. So a really good way to tackle this in a cost-effective way is to say, what perspectives do we not have represented within the team? So for example, Mm -hmm. you may have, actually, it's very likely you have people within your team who are colorblind because a very large percentage of the male population is. So you may not need to recruit customers who are colorblind because you may have that already within the team and have people who can catch those issues. Mm -hmm. So focus on bringing people in that you don't have a strong understanding of Mm -hmm. in terms of their needs. And that's a realistic way to approach this. Yeah, those are great. So embed, examine, expand. But you mentioned that scenario of auditory, right? Mm -hmm. Listening to something. In the context of someone who might be experiencing a website, something that's Mm -hmm. designed to mainly be visual, but will experience it through audio instead. And I thought that was so interesting because I spend a lot of time thinking about voice interactions where companies are doing net new research here to be innovative to how do people think and how do they phrase things differently and what are the languages. And so it's interesting because they are doing that under the lens of 
innovation mm-hmm. and understanding how people interact with these new modalities, whereas it's really not something new, right? It's something right. that they should be doing anyways. And maybe yeah. if they were being more inclusive in their design from the start, they'd actually be a step ahead when thinking about these new technologies and modalities yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually think there's a population here that companies who are thinking about these types of solutions that you're researching, Jenny, could benefit from. People who are blind, they consume websites, they consume mobile apps. I mean, it's all an auditory experience. And so they are really experts in what makes a good experience from that perspective. I'll give you one example. I interviewed a woman a couple of weeks ago who is legally blind, and she was talking to me about link names on websites. And she was explaining to me that there's this very careful balance that designers need to achieve there. The link name needs to be specific enough so that when mm-hmm. taken out of context, like if I pull up a list of links on the screen with a screen reader not, that I not, know... Not click here. Right, not click here. So it needs to be specific enough. But she also said that it can't be so specific that it's like 12 words because... Think about how It'll take forever to get yeah, through. Yeah, like people yeah. who are blind, we also want to just mm-hmm. scan a page and uh. get to things very quickly. So you don't have to say click here to apply for an account. You can just say apply for an account. She said a lot of websites make that mistake of not striking that right balance. Right, and I thought that sense. was very very interesting. But these sorts of tips, I think, could inform other interactions yeah. as well. So we talk about for like Alexa recipe skill that yeah. rattles off all these really long recipes and all these ingredients. You're like, this is too much to be able yeah. to hold in your working memory and act on. Exactly. Much less just the speed to get through the interaction to make your choice. Yes. So yeah, it's the same finding that's already been found and discovered and yeah. people have workarounds and tips to use already. So <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. There, you, there you go. They, they yeah. all, uh, inclusive design can also help with innovation. Help with innovation and also just good UX. I interviewed several people with cognitive disabilities and everything they were pointing out that was challenging for them, like not presenting 30 options at once. Mm -hmm. You think about it, that's good for everyone. No one wants to consume 30 different options for how to contact their investment firm. It extends to everyone. Great. Well, Gina, lovely to have you in studio with us and talking more about inclusive design, a really important topic, a hot topic now too, and excited that you're going to be on stage talking about it in San Francisco. And we'll talk to you all on the next episode of the CX Cast. Goodbye for now. Thanks to our colleagues, Amanda Chen, for recording and mixing the episode, and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast at And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.